0: This is an ABC podcast. On RN, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone, where this week we're jumping into the ethical deep end of popular entertainment. From emotional manipulation to that win-at-all-costs mentality, reality TV programs often showcase the very worst of humanity. And yet, millions of Australians can't stop watching scenes like this one from Married at First Sight.
1: I'm going to pour my drink on her. Well, I am. Can I tell you
0: right now
1: if you don't want me to get started? Shut up! Don't get me started. I'm just saying, I'm asking you nicely. <gasps> oh my God!
2: Oh my God, please get so over our way. Do that Martha. Martha! Do you know what, Martha? Like, I'm just going to say it now. You're as fake as your nose, lip and boob job. It's a shame you couldn't find a plastic surgeon that could fix your personality because that's what's the fakest the most, honey.
0: Well, this week we're taking a philosophical look at the unstoppable pop culture phenomenon to find out why audiences are drawn to ethically questionable TV and what are the moral issues at play.
1: I think the fact that people, when they're on reality TV, they have to exist inside these narrative structures means that There's no real way for the whole enterprise not to be in some way profoundly dishonest.
0: Eleanor Gordon-Smith is a philosopher and PhD student at Princeton University in New Jersey, and you may remember her from previous Philosopher's Zone episodes. Eleanor's interested in that space where philosophy meets real life, and her new book, Stop Being Reasonable, shares stories from people who've radically changed their lives, including an ex-reality TV contestant. Well, you're going to hear more from Eleanor later in the program, but first, here's producer Siobhan Hegarty.
2: In an age of online streaming, appointment TV viewing has become a rarity, reserved for election nights and sporting grand finals. But reality TV, in its most controversial form, is having a cultural moment here in Australia, attracting millions of viewers and waves of moral outrage.
0: I've never understood the appeal of the show and I fully appreciate it. It's watched by gazillions and well done Channel 9 for um, sustaining it. but. This is a show that destroys relationships. It doesn't celebrate relationships. This is a show that encourages cheating and adultery. What sort of message is this show (laughs) setting to teenagers like mine, who I'm trying to teach uh, about the the nature of stable, loving relationships? It's the absolute cesspit of TV.
2: That was News Breakfast co-host Michael Rowland commenting on the program Married at First Sight. He raises valid concerns. Shows like this one do contain gaslighting and toxicity. And when we apply a philosophical lens, issues of consent, responsibility and human degradation rise to the fore. So I reached out to Dr. Christopher Myers, an American philosopher and author of a chapter in the book, The Ethics of Reality TV, A Philosophical Examination, for his understanding of the genre.
3: So the general definition I came up with is largely unscripted, using non-professional actors in trying to capture aspects of reality in ways that more fictionalized accounts don't accomplish. So that can be everything from a National Geographic show on bears to the most horrid relationship-driven toxic kind of show that you're describing. If you're going to ask the question generally, can we ethically consume reality television? The answer has to be yes, because there's so many really terrific versions. If the question is, do the shows that appeal to our more baser instincts, are those appropriate for airing and for consuming? That's, again, a a very different kind of question
2: in the chapter that you write, you say much of reality TV clearly uses persons as a means. Can you describe what you mean there in regards to Kantian ethics?
3: It's a little tricky in Kant. He talks about using persons as a mere means. We use one another as means all the time. You're using me as a means right now to hopefully help make your show a little better. I'm using you to learn more about what's going on in Australia. But Critically, we're both consenting to this, we both understand what's at stake, we're both hoping to gain something from it. Using somebody as a mere means is to force them to engage in behavior to which they have not consented and cannot in any rational moral context in fact consent. And that's what's key to reality TV. Do the participants, first of all, do they genuinely consent to the activities? And then secondly, do the consumers, do the folks who watch these shows, are they consenting to it? And I think in the case of the consumers, one would be hard-pressed to say that there isn't at least adequate consent involved. If you start watching something and you find it too disturbing, you flip the channel. The participants is a much trickier question, and a lot of that comes down to what kind of work the producers have done in encouraging people to participate and informing them of what kinds of joys and horrors they're going to experience in the process.
2: And we do see in some reality TV programs that there's a, a reliance on the humiliation of some of the participants. How much it, harm is too much harm?
3: If they know going in that the whole uh, stick of the show is that we're going to try to make you look worse and thereby make us look better by humiliation. Well, that kind of model goes back 30 years in television with game shows and uh, even some children's shows. And I think arguably it shows up in classic literature too. Plenty of Shakespeare's plays involve humiliation of others. For reality TV, the participants are being enticed in some way to participate in this. And so long as they know going in that that humiliation is at least a possible outcome of their participation, uh, and so long as it doesn't cause them irreparable lifelong harm, seems to me that that's an ethically valid kind of activity.
2: What level of responsibility do audiences have when it comes to the ethical consumption of these programs? I mean, if a show like Married at First Sight, morally dubious as it is, didn't attract millions of viewers, it wouldn't be made. And so what level of onus is upon us?
3: The responsibility to be informed, careful, literate consumers of media of all sorts It's an exhortation rather than a duty, as we see in politics, certainly in the United States, and also true from what I understand in Australia these days. It seems like an awful lot of people are participating in the political process without acquiring information and being careful about how they participate in that. I guess I don't see consuming reality TV as being, it's certainly not as consequential. Uh, In some ways, it's harmless entertainment for the consumer. It doesn't contribute to their own burgeoning excellence, but it probably doesn't undercut it either, depending on how they engage it and whether they learn good lessons from it.
2: Yeah, on that point, I was also wondering... If we are watching gaslighting behavior and toxic relationships and potentially emotionally manipulative or abusive behavior, does that or could that chip away at our own moral fiber?
3: Well, do you guys have the equivalent of, in the United States, a show called Dynasty or other sort of primetime uh, soap opera type shows? So those are fictionalized accounts, but they have all the same toxicity and greed and abuse, I don't see watching reality television as contributing any worse to people's moral degradation than watching those shows. The much harder question for me is the participants. Actors in shows like those, in the fictionalized accounts, one hopes they're not being traumatized for life because they are merely playing a role the participants in reality TV must go into it thinking it's going to be a much more positive experience than it often turns out to be, and thereby they get harmed. But how could they not know that this could be a potentially really harmful experience?
0: On RN, this is The Philosopher's Zone and you're listening to Christopher Myers, philosophy professor at California State University and a contributor to the book The Ethics of Reality TV, a philosophical examination. He's talking with Siobhan Hegarty about the ethical implications of reality TV and whether we can draw any moral lessons from these shows.
3: The opportunity to watch these shows as part of a group and sure, discuss the moral lessons, the failures of the participants, the failure of the storyline. How do we avoid that in our own lives? All of that would be a great sort of the moral of the story is kind of approach to these things. I guess I'm hard pressed to imagine too many folks engaging in that kind of analysis. But even if it's at a low level, you know, you're sitting around with friends or family bemoaning what happened to Bill and Susie on the show, maybe you're learning to avoid that kind of activity or behavior yourself so that you don't encounter the same kinds of hardships they might be.
0: You know, when you treat somebody like dirt.
2: I don't treat you like dirt, dirt Billy. I do not not treat you like dirt. Okay, so stop playing that card.
0: I would uh, agree to disagree on that one. But, um...
1: Stop picking at straws just because you can finally see how awful you have been.
0: Just saying.
2: It turns out there actually was a Billy and Susie in the recent season of Married at First Sight. And if we applied Christopher Meyer's approach to their relationship, we could probably learn a great deal about what to avoid... Like many reality TV participants, Susie received a lot of online hate after appearing on the show. But author and philosopher Eleanor Gordon-Smith says it's important to remember that contestants are never the one-dimensional trope they're made out to be. One of the
1: strangest things about entertainment generally, but TV in particular, is the way that it feels like a bilateral relationship when it's in fact profoundly and necessarily a unilateral relationship. So what I mean by that is it feels very much like, you know, these people. And, you know, I remember I grew up watching a program with a a, like friendly vet and I was so sure that he was in some like very deep way, like my best friend because I was like six or something. And then by the time you're old enough to realize that like, he doesn't really know who I am. He doesn't have any information about my existence. There's something kind of odd about the realization that this, this person who you feel like, you know, and who's been such an important part of your life and who's metaphorically kept you company, like in the living room over dinner for so many years, it's kind of hard to let mentally countenance the fact that they're not actually at all aware of your existence. And I think, very often in entertainment, it's easy to forget that you are anonymous to them in a way that they absolutely are not to you. And that's kind of interesting for like the moral relationship that we have with these people as well. Cause there's a very important distinction in moral relationships between, you know, just like misc moral commands that you have sort of in a standing way and irrespective of whether you're in a relationship with anyone. And then there's a second kind of moral relationship you can have which is about like recognizing each other and being in what philosophers call like a a bilateral relationship. And it's usually in that kind of relationship that things like blame or resentment and forgiveness can happen at all. Cause usually what happens with blame and forgiveness is that, you know, you've wronged me. And so I feel a host of emotions about that. I feel slighted. I feel disrespected. I feel anger. Sometimes I feel resentment and then, in a process that is very philosophically complex and not agreed on at all, I come to forgive you and that consists somehow in me like absolving you of that or I don't come to forgive you and I just blame you kind of in perpetuity because I have a series of like very complicated thoughts and feelings about you, at least one of which is that you did something wrong that you shouldn't have done. And it's really important in the interpersonal situation that that happens between people who recognise each other. That's kind of the framework of the emotion. And I say that it usually happens because it doesn't always happen. I think a lot of us are familiar with blaming public figures. A lot of people feel betrayal when a political leader turns out to have lied, for instance. But the reality TV case is a really interesting one because it's one where you have the illusion of knowing this person and of having spent time with them because, in a real sense, you have spent time with them. They've been in your living room. You've devoted so much time to, like, learning about their lives and learning their characteristics and you know the sound of their voice – So you feel like you're in a position to blame them and to resent them and then oddly sometimes to forgive them as you would if you were in an ordinary two-way personal relationship. As to the question of whether that is morally eroding something important or whether we are too hasty to judge these things, I think it's important to distinguish between the question of whether it's bad to blame them at all from the question of whether it's bad to blame them for bad reasons. So I think it's like probably totally fine to notice bad conduct in entertainment and in reality TV and in celebrity generally and to think that's bad and I'm entitled to feel like that's bad. Indeed, I think one of the really important functions of these sorts of things is that it can let you see from the outside some treatment that you might be blind to when it happens to you. And often, you know, we talk about consciousness raising and these sorts of things. Often it's only when people see other people, whether it's their friends or even someone in a reality TV show being treated in a particular way, that they come to realize that they've been treated in that way and they can sort of see it from the outside. And in that way, you know, the aspect of being an audience member to that is really important because it lets you access things about that experience that you can't access when you're not in the audience and when you're actually in the experience. But that's totally separate from the question of whether it's okay or whether it's morally bad to blame them for bad reasons. I think you're absolutely right. I think that there can be something, some kind of itch that we want to scratch that feels like righteous blame but isn't. And I think that can be a sort of narcotic or an anesthetic thing, that it's really interesting to decry other people. I think one of the tragedies of blame and of resentment more generally is that often the people who were in a hurry to write off as irredeemably bad are actually bad for really understandable reasons. Lots of people have had bad childhoods and bad relationships and bad circumstances and bad education and a whole sort of conspiracy of circumstance for which they're not responsible goes into them acting really badly. And it's a kind of complex tragedy that, that puts us in a position where the people who we most want to blame tend to be the people who have the most number of excuses for having behaved badly. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind and I think it's important to distinguish blame for good reasons from blame that happens as a kind of recreation of feels good because what it's one of the things that is important to know about anger is it, it's a very useful emotion it's a very moral emotion it's based in righteousness and it can accomplish righteousness but it can also just feel good and it can become a conduit for all sorts of issues that you haven't worked out and i think that's important to keep in mind
2: yeah i mean you list all of these explanations as to why somebody may not be behaving in the most moral way but of course when it comes to reality tv there's not only their upbringing and social circumstances also the fact they have producers in their face who may be coercing or encouraging them to act in a certain way how do we reconcile that on top of their life experience
1: I think when we think about the ethical relationships that we had to things like reality TV, it's actually way, way more important to consider the producers and the people who create these things than it is to consider the people who star in them and the people who consume them. Because both the people who star in them and the people who consume them are just kind of like nodes on either end of this process. But the people driving the process, the people who are the creative force behind these things, are often weirdly enough the people that the public never sees. They're just kind of these invisible figures behind the scenes, often literally behind the scenes, and they're often the ones who are doing the most interesting and manipulative and skillful and highly produced moves to make the best narrative possible out of reality. And I think that often is the source of a whole lot of ethical confusion. Because here's the grand secret about being an editor, is that life is very bad at conforming to narrative. And anyone who has worked in any kind of documentary making or editing will tell you this, it's extraordinarily hard to take the actual facts of a scenario and make them into a consumable three-act structure because real events don't happen that way and real people don't arrive to us written that way. So there's an enormous amount of panel beating that has to go on behind the scenes in order for these incredibly complicated people to arrive to us as consumable, trope-driven Characters, And it's almost gotten to the point where the fact that they are a trope when they arrive to us is sort of the point. It's like three layers deep in irony at this point. You know, we watch each new season of shows where people are trying to date people or trying to marry people or trying to find the real one. And every season there's someone who's the catty one and every season there's the one who's, you know, might have a shot with a person and then at the last minute ruins it. Like there's these frameworks that we know so well. But I think that often more than the actual – you know, quote-unquote coercion by producers. I think the fact that people, when they're on reality TV, they have to exist inside these narrative structures means that there's no real way for the whole enterprise not to be in some way profoundly dishonest. You know, I mean, like, reality TV at that point becomes something of an oxymoron, which, of course, we all know, and that's why we're tuning in, is that we want reality as a pantomime. We want the unreality of reality TV. But then you know, a lot of, a lot of the blame and the resentment and the attitudes that we get from those things, they are all too real. So there's a kind of disconnect that can happen there.
2: In your upcoming book, you do dive into reality TV in terms of an ex-contestant and their story. What did you learn from hearing about how the program affected their life course?
1: This is such a fascinating story to work on. So My research at the moment is on radical changes of mind and of how people accomplish them and how people don't accomplish them and how little that often has to do with anything like our public idea of rationality. It's super interesting to speak to people in detail about the moments that they change their minds about their biggest and most deeply held beliefs. And in this case, what happened was that this young man, Alex, had a very clear idea of who he was. He thought he was this kind of fancy, upper class, rides horses, lives in the country, goes to Oxford, goes to Cambridge, this kind of, you know, British gentleman trope with which we're all familiar. And then he went on this reality TV show that asked him to train as a bouncer, as a a nightclub doorman during the European football championships. And the premise of the show was that he was going to have four weeks to learn how to do that, and at the end of that four weeks, he would sit in front of a panel of experts, and they hadn't been told which of the five bouncers they were looking at was not, in fact, a real bouncer. And they were going to watch them all do their job at bouncing for a night. And they would try to pick the imposter. And the whole show was structured around whether or not Alex would make it. And he does. He pulls it off in this incredible hour of TV that is well worth watching. But the really interesting thing for me and my research is that after the camera stopped rolling, Alex got on the train to go back to his fancy upper-class home. And he realized that he actually wasn't at all sure which identity he'd been faking. He wasn't sure if he was really... Someone more like the bouncer or someone more like this character that he now felt he'd been playing for years, this sort of fancy man. And he then embarked on this incredible process where he he basically just left everything he had behind and moved to Australia with no real plan of what he was going to do. And it's been years since then. And he sort of cobbled a life together for himself that is very interesting in its own right. But the really interesting thing about it is that in order to kind of come up with who he was... He had to let go of any idea of who he was. The only way that he could change his mind about his true identity was to stop doing the very thing that the reality TV producers had been trying to do, namely writing a story about a kind of person. He had to let go completely of any idea of archetype or of what he already believed. And he had to just kind of stand back and be an audience member to himself and watch as he behaved in certain ways in lots of little actions every day and it was only by watching himself behave that he kind of came to a new understanding of who he was and that understanding felt real because it was free of story and narrative archetype so it's a super interesting case where the very fact that we exist and see things through narrative can in fact do the very thing that reality tv is meant to do namely can undermine that reality. Patrick Stokes is
2: a senior lecturer in philosophy at Deakin University, and he says it's the tug-of-war between fiction and fact that makes reality TV so complicated to consume.
4: You can maybe watch it thinking, well, it's not entirely real or not entirely true, and so you can kind of suspend judgment. You can also tell yourself, look, everyone's there voluntarily. Everyone has kind of, you know, signed up for this. But at the same time, we know from people that have come off these shows that it often isn't an entirely positive experience for them and there is something almost exploitative about it. Uh, And in that sense, maybe it is something that we should be kind of holding back from watching or holding back from producing because, again, with television, there's that very direct thing that in consuming it, you are encouraging it. Your eyeballs are the product. So in in watching it, you are directly supporting the creation of of that product.
2: Absolutely. And if a show like The Bachelor or Survivor didn't rate, it wouldn't be made. So... How do you portion up the, the level of responsibility between the producers, the makers of the program, the contestants who sign up for it, perhaps without realising what they're getting into, and then the audiences?
4: I do think the ultimate responsibility rests with the producers. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, they're the ones who can make the, the decision to to go ahead and do this or not do this. Or they can do interesting things where they actually subvert the format, right? Where they sort of do some fourth wall breaking in a way that that kind of calls everyone's attention to the fact that this is all artificial or that that, that the audience is being manipulated? There there actually probably are a lot of really interesting avenues for sort of subverting the genre itself on the part of producers. Uh, Whether they take those opportunities or not is another question.
2: Yeah, so often reality TV does focus on the negative, on toxic Mm -hmm. relationships, on competitiveness, but can they also inspire the best in us and and lead us to following Aristotle's definition of a good life.
4: Well, Aristotle's definition of a good life would make very bad television. That's, that's kind of the problem there. For, for Aristotle, everything's about moderation, and moderation would be absolutely unwatchable. So, um, yeah, in a way, because you want extremes to generate entertainment, uh, anything like a kind of Aristotelian view of the good life is just going to make very dull television. Could reality TV be a force for good? No doubt it could. No doubt there are ways in which it, it, it could be, but it could just as easily manipulate people in that way too and deliver a very schmaltzy version of good or a better life, you know, something that kind of leaves you emotionally satisfied and with a warm, fuzzy, inner glow, but then doesn't actually affect any real change in the world or cause you to affect any real change in the world. So there's that risk too.
2: So should we engage in it at all?
4: look, there's probably better things to do with your time, but I mean, I I think it's probably mostly fairly harmless, to be honest, but I I think any entertainment you engage with, there is always a moral dimension to It's this the best use of the next two hours of your life, or however long it is. Do you want to support the people involved or not? But at the same time, you know, everyone needs a break, everyone needs entertainment, and there is something positive sometimes about just sitting down and watching something really mindless that you can just zone out into, so... Yeah, it, it's a complicated decision. And as with all ethical decisions, it ends up being very much a matter of what the Greeks called phronesis, practical wisdom. It's a matter of, of seeing the situation and judging based on the specifics of the situation.
0: Associate Professor Patrick Stokes from Deakin University there. And before that, you heard Eleanor Gordon-Smith, an Australian philosopher based at Princeton University and the author of Stop Being Reasonable, an exploration of rationality and radical changes of mind. They were both speaking there with producer Siobhan Hegarty. And keep an eye out for Eleanor Gordon-Smith. She's going to be back on the program in the not too distant future. And if you're interested in reading more about the ethics of reality TV or Game of Thrones, or perhaps the work of morally tainted artists, then Siobhan Hegarty has produced a great series of articles on these topics for ABC Life, and we'll put a link to those on the Philosopher's Zone website. Thanks for your company this week. I'm David Rutledge. See you next time.